Hi. This is the introduction to the brief of the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, written by A.W. Talzer. The first thing that you should know as we go into this book is the writer in the Old Testament said this. He said, let he who would boast, boast in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord. And so what he's saying is there's one thing for us to boast about, and that's in our knowledge of God. Now, A.W. Towser wrote this book back in the 1940s, 50s, something like that. And in his day, he felt the knowledge of God was at a low level. Well, it's even more so at a low level today. Now, just so you know, he was a young man who was actually walking down the street and heard a street preacher say, if you don't know God, if you don't know Jesus, then this is what you should do. You should go home and you should say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's exactly what A.W. Towser did. He went home. He got down on his knees in the hayloft, did that prayer, and got up a different man. And after about four or five years, he became a preacher, completely self-taught, high school, college stuff. He He taught himself everything about the Lord. He taught himself no seminary, none of that stuff. The guy taught himself. And through his walk with Christ and through his own personal reading. And he ended up being a pastor for well in excess of 30 years across three different churches. So a guy named Michael Molinos said that if you want to know God, he said, God takes the soul by the hand and he leads her through faith. And Michael Molinos was, he was actually uh, condemned as a heretic in the Spanish Inquisition, and killed. But his point stands. You're not going to get to know God by head knowledge. If you're going to know him, you're going to need to get to know him through his spirit and through the eyes of faith. So with this introduction, uh, let me just throw in one other thing that you you should think about. That's Ezekiel. When Ezekiel saw the four living creatures, when God pulled him up to heaven, he said this, He said, I looked and I saw a whirlwind coming from the north, a great cloud with the flashing back and forth and brilliant light all around it. In the center of the fire was a gleam like amber. And within it was the form of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human form, but each had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like the hooves of a calf, gleaming like polished bronze. Under their wings on the four sides, they had human hands. All four living creatures had faces and wings, and their wings were touching one another. They did not turn as they moved. Each one went straight ahead. The form of their faces was that of a man, and each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and also the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread upward. Each had two wings, touching the wings of the creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each creature went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they moved. In the midst of the living creatures was the appearance of glowing coals of fire, or of torches. Fire moved back and forth between the living creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures were darting back and forth as quickly as flashes of lightning. When I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. The workmanship of the wheels looked like the gleam of burl, and all four had the same likeness. The workmanship looked like a wheel within a wheel. 
As they moved, they went in any of the four directions without pivoting as they moved. The rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. As the living creatures moved, the wheels moved beside them, and when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise alongside them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, the wheels moved. When the creatures stood still, the wheels stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose alongside them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was the likeness of an awesome expanse, gleaming like crystal. And under the expanse, their wings stretched out toward one another. Each one also had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood still with their wings lowered. Above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne with the appearance of sapphire. And on the throne high above was a figure like that of a man. From what seemed to be his waist up, I saw a gleam like amber with what looked like a fire within it all around. And from what seemed to be his waist down, I saw what looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. The appearance of the brilliant light all around him was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard a voice speaking. Think about how many times you heard the word like and likeness. What Ezekiel saw, he, he doesn't have words for it. The best he can do is give us analogies. And so this is the God that we are trying to get to know better. He's a God that's not like anything else anywhere else in the universe. Let's get started. Brief one. The knowledge of the holy, the Trinity, and Jesus, the God-man. So how is it that we can find out what God is like? Well, there are three primary ways we can discover that. The first is this. And the psalmist wrote that the heavens declare his glory. And Paul wrote, he said that his internal nature, his invisible, his power, he said, and all of his qualities can be seen in creation. So certainly his works of creation. We can see him in the word, of course. And then we can see him in Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, he said, if you've seen me, then you've seen the father. They said, show us the father. He said, are you kidding? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And so those are three ways that we can get to know more about him through creation, through the word and through Jesus Christ. And so we can study and we can pray and we can meditate. And in fact, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the pure. And the word he used in, in Greek was katharoi in heart, which could mean clean in heart. He says, for they shall see God. Now, a big part of understanding God is that God is a trinity. And so... It is certainly a mystery, but let's examine it and take a little bit of a look at it um, because it is the way that God works. He is three in one, and he is yet one, but yet three. And the three work together. So we see it in the, from the beginning. In the beginning of the word, we see that when the world was created, we see that it speaks of Elohim. He says, let us. He's saying Elohim. And then it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so we see the Spirit, we see the Father right there in the very beginning. And then in John 1, the first chapter, John gets right to it. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in Colossians, he said, for by him, all things were created. Speaking of Jesus in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we see that Jesus, the Holy Spirit and the Father were all active in the creation. We also see the Trinity when Jesus began his ministry. So when he first launched out and was baptized by John the Baptist, or better said, John the Baptizer, we see that it tells us this. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love with him. I am well pleased. And so we saw the Father, Jesus being baptized, the dove, the Holy Spirit descending on him, and heard the Father speaking. And in the resurrection, we see different verses that indicate, again, that all three parties played a role in the resurrection of Christ. In Acts, we find out that he says, the writer says, Luke, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all were witnesses. And then in John wrote, Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And then in Romans, we see in Romans, the first chapter, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in Romans eight, it says the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. If the same Holy Spirit lives in you, he will give life to your bodies in the same way. So we see the resurrection Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit were involved in it. And then the Nicene Creed, written by the early church, 318 church fathers. Note the 318, that's the same number as the trained men that Abraham had in his household when he went to go and fight and get back Lot. And in fact, he was successful with that. I'm sure that was by design. But these were men who had been dismembered, men who had been crippled, men who had been hurt in all sorts of ways for the name of Christ. And they got together and they wrote this out, hashed it out. And the Nicene Creed says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Now let's consider Jesus and how he was both man and God. What theologians like to call the hypostatic union. So we can see Jesus as God several places. John 20 and 28, his disciple Thomas, the one who had doubted him, answered him and said, my Lord and my God, because by this point he realized what was going on. And in the beginning, John said, in in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So he made it very clear. And the writer of Hebrews, when he was telling us that Jesus is more than angels, he said this about the son. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is in the scepter of your kingdom. And if we look at it, we see that Jesus claimed the divine name. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am claiming the name of Yahweh, the the sacred name of God, the father. Jesus was man and God. Paul writing to the Romans said, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David, man, according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. God by his resurrection from the dead. And we saw that in John, he presented him as a man as well. He said, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He came as a man. And then on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. He had human needs. And this is the man who was fully man and the God who was fully God in one Jesus Christ our Savior. And you say, why is that important? I believe it's important because he is our high priest. And so he can come as our high priest in every way. When we go to the throne, we know when we're talking to him that he was tempted in every way like as we are. That word tempted means tried, tested. He went through the things that we've gone through. He knows what it feels like to be a human. He knows how hard it is to be down here, thirsting, hungry, needing to sleep. He knows and understands these things, but yet he's God and he can go to the father knowing all the power that God has and having it himself to be able to give us what is needed. Brief two, the I am God with the right to rule. So what is sin? In essence, we could say that sin is man sitting on the throne that's intended for God. That's what Jesus, That's what Satan tried to do. And that's what we try to do when we try to control and rule our own lives. I am means that God sits outside of time and space, because when he said I am, he was saying that he always was, he always is and always will be all at the same time so that he sees everything that ever was right now. He's back at the beginning of time. In fact, before it, God is before the beginning and all the way to the, the end of the eternal earth state, heaven state. He's on all those places at the same time. Um, And he's outside of space in his creation. Yet he made us in his image. 
And his it's his will that we were meant to serve, which is one of the reasons that Jesus told us in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And the solution for this fight between us trying to do our will versus doing God's will is to be crucified, as Paul said in Galatians. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because he is this I am God, self-existent, in need of nothing, has everything that it's ever going to need, all in him, all at once, can do anything. He needs nothing and no one, but yet he can use anything. And the writer of Acts, Luke said, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. We saw him use a donkey with Balaam to have the donkey actually speak to Balaam to warn him not to go down a narrow alleyway where an angel waited to slay him. We saw him say that rocks could be made to cry out for him. So we know that This Jesus needs nothing. This God, he needs nothing. But yet, he can use anything. Even a rock or a donkey, he can certainly use you. Brief three. The eternal, infinite, and unchanging God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, said Moses. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we recognize that for thine is the kingdom and the power forever. God said that he can declare the end from the beginning. Why? Because he sees it all right now. And we recognize that some part of us is eternal. Tennyson said, you will not see us in the dust. You made man, he knows not why. He thinks he was not made to die. And you have made him, you are just. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to immortality we spoke about already will raise you to life if you believe in him. We get a picture of the infinite dimensions of God from Psalms 139, where David wrote, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. But us, by contrast, our time is short. The same David who spoke of the eternality of God said, Show me, O Lord, my end and the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You indeed have made my days as hand breaths, and my lifetime as nothing before you. Truly, each man at his best exists as but a breath. Surely every man goes about like a phantom. Surely he bustles in vain. He heaps up riches not knowing who will haul them away. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of fools. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because of what you have done. Remove your scourge from me. I am perishing by the force of your hand. You discipline and correct a man for his iniquity, consuming like a moth what he holds dear. Surely each man is but a vapor. We know we have the hope of eternity, but that hope rests in Christ, 
Nothing else, certainly not in our mortal, our mortal and fleshly nature. At the same time, God is unchanging. Why? Because he's perfect. He said, for I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob, in the book of Malachi. We do change. We do grow. John wrote, I must decrease and he must increase. And this describes the process of Christian growth as we try to become more like Jesus, the man God. Brief four, God is omniscient and all wisdom and power are with him. In Psalms 139, David wrote, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You understand my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are aware of all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. In the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All my days were written in your book and ordained for me before one of them came to be. And Paul said to the church at Colossians, For I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me face to face, that they may be encouraged in heart, knit together in love, and filled with the full riches of complete understanding, so that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because God loves us, has all power and wisdom, will he not act in a way that benefits us to the limits? Will not his will be better than ours? I think we can rest in that. Now, the other part of this is that God is omnipotent. And Jeremiah said, nothing is too hard for God. He said, I am the Lord, the God of all the peoples of the world. Is anything too hard for me? In Genesis, he told Abraham, he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. This is what he told Abram and Sarai when they were 99 years old and 89 years old, respectively, that they were going to have a baby boy when her womb was dead and when he was too old to sire a child. And then the psalmist wrote in Psalm 62, God has spoken once and I heard it twice. Power belongs to God. So he has all power. He has all wisdom and all knowledge. What an awesome God we serve. Brief five. God is transcendent and with us. Transcendent means something that is existing apart from and yet not subject to the limitations of the material universe. And that's what God is. He's something completely different than anything else that we know. I'm pretty sure that's one reason why he told us not to worship any graven images because there's nothing that we can create or nothing that we've ever seen that is anything like him. The word tells us that he, he dwells in unapproachable light and that no man can see him and live. And so this makes it difficult, except he desires, he desires us to know about him, then we would have the ability to do it. But fortunately for us, he does desire that. Jesus said, come and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. And we know that he's with us because he said it so many times. He said, 
in Deuteronomy, when he was speaking through Moses, be strong and very courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. He told Joshua, I will be with you. We heard already how he told Moses that. And then there was a time when he told Moses he wouldn't go. And Joseph said, well, if you won't go, then I'm not going. Because he knew that the secret of success was having God with him. What we know what Jesus told us was, he said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, Jesus told us when he gave us the Great Commission. He said he would be with us always, even to the end of the ages. And then, even more reassuring, Paul told us, he said, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor thing present, nor things to come, nor depth, nor height, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, that love which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So not only is he with us, but there's nothing that can ever separate us from that. Brief six, faithful, good, and just. God is faithful. Paul wrote this. He said, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Speaking of God. And David is an example of that. When David got to Ziglag, it was the worst time in his life. He had been away. He had found a little place where that he could call him his own. He had a lot of people that were with him, the people that were in debt, the discontented and the distressed, the word tells us. He had a lot of them and all their wives and all their children and all their goods. And they had been away uh, getting ready. They were actually getting ready to fight the Israelites, which they didn't want to do. And fortunately, they'd sent David and his men back to Ziglag, which they'd given to him. But when they got back, they had been raided by the Amalekites. And so it said that the people cried and wept until they could cry no more because everything had been taken. Their, their wives, their women, their children, their daughters, their sons, all of their possessions, everything was taken. And so what it tells us is that David, knowing that God was faithful, encouraged himself in the Lord. And then we're told that David, through a series of providential events, was able to find where the Amalekites had gone, surprise them, and he and his men fight them and take back everything that they lost and more because they got everything that those Amalekites had raided, which included other areas other than Ziklag. And so... David found out that God is faithful, but God is not just faithful. God is good. Have you ever thought about why prayer works? Prayer really works because God is good. And Matthew said it. He said, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See, God is good and he does only good things, including giving us good things. God was good when he caused the rain to stop uh, for Elijah. And he did it because he wanted to put the people in a crisis state so they could make a determination who was their God. Was it Baal and Ashtoreth or was it, or was it God? And so, you know, he set up the giant showdown between Elijah and the 800 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. 
And as we know, Elijah was the one whose God answered by fire. We know that the priest of Baal and Asherah stood around all day, cutting themselves and jumping around and dancing around. And Baal and Asherah did nothing. Nothing happened. They put their bull up on the altar and just sat there. And finally, we know that Elijah got tired of it and he went up and he just did an, an oral prayer to the Lord. And he just asked God to show them who, who was God. And God answered with fire. He had them to pour water over the offering, this big bull on the altar. And it said that the fire consumed the bull, the altar, and all the water as well. And so at that point, the people knew who God was. So God was good when he started the rain back because at this point, the people knew who he was. And so Elijah prayed. And guess what? God started the rain back again. And James tells us about that. He said, when he tells us that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, he talks about this. But God is good, and we can count on it. And that's the reason we pray to him. God is not just good. He's also just. And that's why I believe the word says vengeance belongs to the Lord, because he's the only one that can properly administer vengeance. He's the one who knows the heart. He's the one that knows what's going to happen, what all the consequences are. So his omniscience, his goodness, and his power come together that you can uniquely qualify him to be God. And you can think of this a little story. There's a story of a just and wise African king. And so in his village, it was ruled extremely well. and Nothing ever happened. However, they started to have a problem with thefts. Somebody was sneaking into villages and stealing things out of the, out of the huts. And so eventually they finally caught the thief. It turns out it was the wise chief's mother. And so he had said, whoever was found to be stealing would be beat with the whip. And so what he did was, people wondered, what would he do? His little mother, would he beat her as he said he would? Being just, he would have to. But being loving and wise, you know, that wouldn't be the thing to do. She'd probably die from it. So what did the wise king do? Well, he grabbed his mother he wrapped her in his arms and he took off his kingly robe and he barred his back to them while holding his mother and he took the whipping for her. He was just and yet he was wise. And that's what Jesus did for us. He took the beating that we should have taken. He took the punishment that we should have taken. He took the punishment for our sins that we might be redeemed. God is merciful and gracious. That's what the cross was all about. It was very similar to that wise and just king that we saw. He took the whipping that we deserved. He died for us. That was the death that we deserved for our sins. He was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb uh, that was going to be sacrificed for our sins. None of us could do it. None of us could live the perfect life. But Jesus did it. And that was what it required for the second Adam to get us out of the trap that we were in, that the first Adam set for us. And that's what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. God comes to us. He reaches down to get us in his mercy and grace. And what we see in other religions is we see us trying to reach him through our works. But God says that he used the law slash works to show us the need for grace. The law is a guardian to show us we needed his son to die on the cross, be resurrected for us, for our sins. God is love. 
Brief eight. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. John wrote, and we have to exhibit it. John also said, Beloved, let us love one another, because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And Paul defines what love is. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a ringing gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have absolute faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and exult in the surrender of my body, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no account of wrongs. Love takes no pleasure in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be restrained. Where there is knowledge, it will be dismissed. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial passes away. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I set aside childish ways. Now we see but a dim reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. But then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Brief 9. God is sovereign, and yet we have free will. When writing to the Ephesians, Paul wrote, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. God is in charge and working everything the way that he wants it to be. But yet, Joshua wrote and said this, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river are the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So God is in total and complete control over everything, and yet we have free will. How do you reconcile these two seemingly irreconcilable things? The best I can do for you is to tell you about a train. Now imagine that there's a train with an engineer on it that's going to take it where he's going to take it. He's a perfect engineer. He's got the perfect train. That train is going to get where it's going. Now you and I have a, a choice. We can get on that train or not get on it. And that's our part in the thing. We can decide to be on it or not be on it. But ultimately that engineer is going to take the train where it's going. And that's kind of the best analogy I can give you for God's sovereignty and our free will. We can get on board with what God is doing, or we can choose not to, but either way, God is going to get it done. Top takeaways. First, to know God is the whole duty of man. Let he who would boast, boast in this, that he knows and understands me. Second top takeaway would be, we have to do it by the Spirit. These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Third, we must want it. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, Jeremiah said. Be blessed. Hi, thank you for listening to this brief 
We have plenty more at christianbrief.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-B-R-I-E-F.com. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And hope you check out some of the other briefs at christianbrief.com.